Good morning, and welcome to our seven-part series on being human. What does it mean to be human? And why this series on being human? It's a question we always ask ourselves, the question of identity at the deepest level. Um, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Sometimes those questions have been made fun of, but they are the fundamental questions we want answers to in our life. They're the questions that uh, the ancient philosophers asked and they continue being asked today. By adolescents, for example, who am I? What's my identity? We all want to know who we are at the most fundamental level and not only that, but what it means. What does it mean to be myself? What does it mean to be human? And what does it mean for my relationships with other people? So those are the questions we're going to look at in this series, okay? I'll be referring to the PowerPoints that are attached to this podcast, um, and I suggest you look at them because I think the illustrations are helpful, especially in some cases. So what does it mean to be human? What kind of a thing is a human being? Well, I find myself existing in a world of things. I'm similar to but different from many of them. As a matter of fact, different from all of them. I'm unique. Uh, there is nothing in this world that can reason the way a human being can reason. There are no other animals that have technology. That is, technology defined as the capacity to create tools and to use those tools in order to create further tools with which to work and produce things intuited thought of, developed by the human mind. In any case, I find myself existing in a world of things. Some very like myself, some who have similar capacities and attributes, the animals, for example, and yet I'm so very different from them. We are so very different from them. My body is a biological organism, yes, but I have things and do things. We humans have things and do things that other animals do not. What does that mean? Other existing things in the world are very different from myself. <laughs> Think of rocks and clouds, etc. Uh, they're not even living. And at the bottom of it all, only I am myself. I am unique. There is not another like me in existence or like you in existence. So the search for life, the answers to life's fundamental questions, who am I, why am I here, What's my purpose? What's the meaning of my life? Where am I going? Do I have a destiny other than life in this world? And how should I live this life then in order to get there, in order to have a good life? Because we all want happiness. We all want a good life, depending on how that's defined. And so the search for truth and wisdom, which is the origin of all sciences, um, is the search of philosophy. And that's what we're going to be doing here. We're going to take a philosophical look, that is to find some ultimate reasons for the meaning of my life, who I am, and how I should live it. Um, and we will also take into consideration some discoveries and understandings that are more typical of uh, recent, both scientific and philosophical uh, developments. Um, We'll be looking at something called metaphysics a little bit. That is, what is the structure of being? What, is it, how, what does it mean to exist uh, fundamentally? Because our ethics develop from our metaphysics. That is, what are the things in the world? What are we? And what's their relationship uh, to one another? And our ethics guide our actions and really determine who we become and what we achieve because we become who we choose to become. And if we don't choose, that's also a choice, and uh, we don't reach our potential. And that's kind of sad, uh, because we have many good things. We've been gifted with many good capacities and potencies. So not to think about these questions, not to try to answer them, is really not to achieve our potential. And of course, as adults and here at school, we're involved in helping young people develop as well. So the sooner we can understand these questions ourselves, the more easily we'll be able to understand and help young people 
ask and find answers to these questions as well. So I'd like to read a quote here from Lord Jonathan Sachs, who was an Orthodox Jewish rabbi and was the chief rabbi in Great Britain from 1991 to 2013. In an address entitled, The Limits of Secularism, he spoke about the human desire for meaning, and this is what he said. The 21st century is likely to be a more religious century than the 20th. It is interesting that religion is particularly growing in places like China, where the economy is growing. We must ask ourselves why this is, because it is actually very odd indeed. Think about it. Every function that was once performed by religion can now be done by something else. In other words, if you want to explain the world, you don't need Genesis. You have science. If you want to control the world, you don't need prayer. You have technology. If you want to prosper, you don't necessarily seek God's blessing. You have the global economy. You want to control power. You no longer need profits. You have liberal democracy and elections. If you're ill, you don't need a priest. You can go to a doctor. Religion seems superfluous, redundant. Why then does it survive? My answer, says Lord Jonathan Sachs, is simple. Religion survives because it answers three questions that every reflective person must ask. Who am I? Why am I here? How then shall I live? We will always ask those three questions because Homo sapiens is the meaning-seeking animal. And indeed, as Socrates said many centuries ago, the unexamined life is not worth living. So. Being human then entails questions like this. Being human is defined as being a rational animal. What does rationality have to do with animality? What difference does rationality make? Affectivity and emotions, are they responses to stimuli only or are they something else? Freedom, from what? For what? Relationality. Is it essential or conventional? In other words, do we need to relate to others? Or do we relate to others simply to share goals and make a more comfortable life for ourselves? Um, and is kind of unnecessary. Am I an autonomous self, as Kant would suggest? Sexual differentiation is male and female. Is it fundamental or is it optional? Sociality, casual connections or shared intentions? The autonomous individual or are we essentially interdependent? So it's not so easy to understand ourselves. We're very strange creatures. We're part of the material world, yet we transcend matter with our desires for infinite truth, goodness, and beauty. We're born and we die, yet there's something in us that longs for the eternal. Nonetheless, human nature is the one thing we cannot afford to misunderstand if we want to know how we are to organize our lives personally and in community with others. So let's take a look at the answer. The answer is twofold. First, because if I don't think carefully about the meaning and purpose of my existence, if we don't think carefully about the meaning and purpose of our existences, we run the risk of living our lives in a way that will not lead us to happiness. And without an answer to these fundamental questions, it's hard to decide how to live, and we run the risk of missing out on true happiness. This is the ultimate FOMO, and uh, we all know what FOMO is now, right? Fear of missing out, F-O-M-O. -O. It's a new um, psychological affliction, apparently, that uh, is fueled by some aspects of social media where our lives and our, even our faces can be made to look perfect, exciting, etc. when they really are not underneath at all. We face the same human problems that we always have, uh, that individuals have always come up against. So it's kind of an artificial existence, and yet it presses us 
to be constantly looking for this kind of perfect illusory happiness out of fear of missing out. Well, the greatest fear of missing out should be about having a real fruitful life that will give us happiness if we lead an ethical or virtuous life, if we live for one another, if we use our rationality well, etc. On a more fundamental level, spending some time reflecting on the meaning of human life makes sense for us because it's a very human thing to do. We alone of all the animals on the planet have the capacity to reflect and discover a bigger picture about reality and to guide our lives accordingly. That is, to live our lives deliberately, by choice, and creatively, making the most of our talents, enjoying those God-given gifts, and contributing, contributing to the happiness and welfare and good of others, to the development and betterment of society, and through improvement of the planet as a whole. Um, ecology, responsible ecology. There is a human ecology to make our world more human, more livable for all of us, um, and not living just by instinct or by following the crowd. So in this first pictorial slide, we have the quote from Genesis, so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. And that's interesting, because it's not just one individual, but humankind is plural. Humankind, as we know from Revelation, is male and female, but we'll look at that down the road a bit. So the opening chapter of Genesis expresses uh, the reality of humanity very well. We're in the image and likeness of God, and in God, as in us, there is work and rest. There are six days of creation, God working and making things, punctuated by God stopping, looking, and enjoying the goodness of what he has made. On the seventh day, he rests entirely from work and exclaims that it is very good. And that, then, is the appropriate life for the human person who is made in God's image and likeness cooperating in the divine task of creation. Work and rest, work and contemplation. Creativity, uh, productiveness, interpersonal relationships, and contemplation, reflection. In the next slide, we look at what does it mean to be human from the point of uh, view of archaeology and prehistory. And here we have slides that testify to the fact that there is a radical difference between the human being and other beings on the planet. If we look at the picture on the top right, the woman 22,000 years ago, that sculpture uh, from France, it's, her features are fairly visible, but you can see there already that there is an understanding of the human form. The bison on the top left being carved out of the rock of a cave 22,000 years ago, again, also in France. Testify to the human intellect at work, human rationality at work. In the lower part of the slide, the bison depicted on the wall in the ochre paint, and the hands, human hands, from some 15,000 years ago, uh, in caves in Spain show that the human being is quite different from any other being on the planet. We want to understand. We want to know why. We don't know the purpose of the bison, whether it was just um, a depiction of an animal that was in the world, whether it meant food, whether it had something to do with hunting, or even with Worship, something more transcendent. The hands, certainly the human hand, that unique instrument of creativity, not possessed by any other animal that is so fit for our rationality to create things with. And then finally, the harpist. Again, we see the human form being 
more developed. You can see the muscles and uh, the face, and, and music is part of human life. And this is from 3,200 years ago on the Cyclades Islands in Greece. So what is the difference? What is this radical difference of rationality? And how do we know that it's there? Well, we know that it's there because there are two constants in human life, and they are art and religion, that again transcend the immediate life of food, clothing, and shelter. There is something else. We sit back, we take time, we try to mirror ourselves in some way so that we can express ourselves and understand ourselves better. In the following slide, we see evidences of religion as a marker of human difference. Um, religion, like art, is uniquely human. No other animal shows any sign of religious awareness, ritual, or worship. But the human animal is always a religious animal. Um, as far back as we can find evidence so far, we see ritual, we see something that uh, links the human being to the divine or to something transcendent, which ultimately uh, is defined as the divine. So if we go back to the 10th to the 8th millennium before Christ, during the first uh, phase of the Neolithic era, we find Gobekli Tepe, which is the oldest evidence of human construction, of human doing, uh, that we've found so far. Um, and you see there the, the heads with human features, the bodies, the attempt to create uh, human faces, etc. Again, an effort to understand ourselves, an effort to connect with something or someone beyond ourselves. Particularly interesting, I think, is the picture at the bottom left, which are human heads encased in plaster. And they're actually human skulls. And this is something that was not unique to this particular space, but rather the idea of preserving something about the human being that is evidence, that is enshrined in their rationality, in the head. So um, we see already a respect for rationality. It's a unique feature in humankind and something about the human being um, being related to something transcendent, a power, a being. And that being would have to be intelligent. Because if we are intelligent, that being would have to have created us intelligent because we don't put ourselves into the world. So to go back to what it means to be human or what is the human being, we are bodily creatures who are at the same time rational and relational. We have a biological organism as an essential part of us. We're not a spirit encased or imprisoned in a body that limits it. That's in a dualistic, I was going to say old-fashioned, but actually it still exists in the world understanding of the human being. That the human being is primarily the mind, the soul, the rational part of oneself. And the body is simply a weight, is uh, a burden, is something that in its desires for material and sense pleasures leads us uh, in the wrong direction, leads us to excess. And yet that is not a correct understanding of what it means to be human. Because we are, when a human being comes into existence, that human being has a body and a soul, a body and a spirit. So we are that one thing. We are a body-soul composite that is meant to be together. It is good to be together. And the body is the way we express our rationality, the way we enter into relationship with others because we can look at them with our eyes, because we can speak with them with language, uh, because we can create things that we can share in the world with our hands, uh, starting with our mind that we imagine it and then we create it. 
So we are creatures, we're bodily and rational and relational creatures. It is good that we exist. If we think back to that slide um, with the first words or one of the, the phrases from Genesis about creation on it, creation of a human being, we see that God looks at creation and he says, it is good. Every, every time he creates something new, he says that it is good. Okay. So it is good that we exist, which is why even if life can become difficult sometimes, we need to remember and help each other remember that it is good that we exist. God created us out of love, along with everything else in the universe, but he created us in his image and likeness and gave us a mission. In other words, no one can replace us, number one, in God's love. His, his creation of each one of us is a particular act of love for that individual which is why disrespect of the human being, of the human person, of any individual human person from conception till death is such a, such a, a, a bad thing, such an inhuman thing to do, if you will, because each one of us is a particular act of love of God sent into the world for a reason, sent into history at a particular moment to do certain things, to be a certain person, to relate to certain others, and no one can replace that in God's plan. We're part of the material universe as bodily creatures, we're a living organism. We are rational, we gain our knowledge through sense data. We reason from things we experience in the world through unseen causes, and we choose freely rather than acting out of necessity or under coercion, and we work and we contemplate. I'd like to go back to the point of we choose freely rather than acting out of necessity or under coercion. Freedom understood as a capacity of the human being, this bodily, spiritual, rational, relational creature, doesn't mean I can do anything I want. I mean, of course, I can do anything I want. I can. Um, paint a beautiful work of art, or I can throw myself off the top of the, top of the, the Empire State Building. Um, one makes sense, the other doesn't, really. That's not freedom. Freedom is to choose without being driven, determined, necessarily, and without option by my drives and desires, as well as not being coerced, not being forced by anyone else to choose differently from the way I believe I ethically should. That latter point, I think, is important because someone can force me physically to do something, put a gun in my hand and make my hand pull the trigger, uh, to injure someone else or to take away their life. But no one can coerce me to want to do that. No one can coerce my interior decisions, my most intimate expression of who I am and what I want. So freedom, actually, it, rational freedom, okay, is freedom to choose the good, freedom to choose what is best uh, for me and for others. So if I recognize who and what I am, that I'm a creature, I've been put here, I didn't bring myself into existence. I have been put here, my life is a gift. I've been given talents, capacities, and potencies to use for the good. I can misuse those. And that's, in a sense, that sets me up for a lack of freedom because it sets me up in a pattern of behaviors that will little by little make me a slave of my desires, my instincts, my whatever else might play into it. But to the degree that I allow myself to be driven by something that is not 
a rational choice, not a free choice. Um, I am, in a sense, enslaving myself to something else. Um, so no one and nothing can coerce my interior freedom, uh, my freedom to choose what's good. If I'm rational, if I'm reasonable, um, I will choose what is best for me. I will not allow myself to be driven or enslaved by influences, exterior or interior drives, that then determine my choices in a direction that makes me less than human, really. I mean, if you think of you know, someone addicted to um, drugs, alcohol, something else, it's, you are no longer free. You, know, you are no longer really who you were meant to be or who you could be and perhaps even who you long to be because you remember that you were once not like this, but you are now enslaved or determined by um, series of behaviors that you have set in motion that are so strong that you, with your freedom, can hardly break through them. In any case, that's a worst case scenario. Um, but we, we need to help people understand what freedom is, especially young people. It is not the freedom to do anything I want. Yes, I can do that, but that's really a misuse of my freedom. And another thing that, that we see is that we're relational, which also means that my freedom is not freedom of self-assertion without concern for others, pursuit of my own goals without concern for others. On the contrary, we are persons existing in a web of interrelatedness and interdependence with others. Study after study shows that good social relationships are the strongest and most consistent predictor there is of a happy life. That is a quote from uh, Ruth Whitman, her article, Happiness is Other People, and I'd just like to read a quote from that. She says, study after study shows that good social relationships are the strongest, most consistent predictor there is of a happy life, even going so far as to call them a, quote, necessary condition for happiness, end quote, meaning that humans can't actually be happy without them. This is a finding that cuts across race, age, gender, income, and social class so overwhelmingly that it dwarfs any other factor. What's more, neglecting our social relationships is actually shockingly dangerous to our health. Research shows that a lack of social connection carries with it a risk of premature death comparable to that of smoking and is roughly twice as dangerous to our health as obesity. That's pretty striking. Um, so here we start with the, the most basic relationality that exists. I mean, of course, God and each one of us. But then among human beings are being male and female is very fundamental to our being human. In other words, we have been put into existence sexually differentiated for the sake of mutual support and happiness. And God told us to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and steward it. So right there we see that those fundamental relationships that begin with male, female, husband, wife, child, parents, etc., etc., is really basic to who we are. And we have to think um, about those things in that way to come to a, a good understanding of what the human being is. Uh, St. John Paul. The second said, as the family goes, so goes the nation and so goes the whole world in which we live. Therefore, considering this um, fundamental relationality of husband, wife, parent, child, grandparents, etc., 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 and taking that into consideration in the way we structure society, of course, is going to be very fundamental to how we flourish 
as human beings. Um, we'll leave that there for now. I like the quote from St. Irenaeus of Lyon, ancient father of the church. He says, the glory of God is man fully alive, and the life of man is the vision of God. If the revelation of God through creation already brings life to all living beings on earth, how much more will the manifestation of the Father by the word bring life to those who see God? But this notion that, of course, union with God is what is our foundational relationship. And the vision, the full vision of God that we will ultimately have will make us completely happy in a way that will fulfill beyond measure the happiness we have begun to enjoy in this life if we live well. But that God rejoices, the glory of God is man fully alive, that God rejoices that he enjoys, that he enjoys man using all of his talents, using all of his abilities, that he has created us for this kind of flourishing. And this leads us into the next topic, which is the substantial unity of body and soul. And I think these slides, uh, the next pictorial slide, is very interesting because here we see the plasticity and flexibility and adaptability of the human body for the expression of the soul. Whether we look at the recovering veteran learning how to walk again after injuries on the left. The young gymnast in the middle whose bodily posture is just amazing as she flies through the air. Or the very elderly gentleman on the bottom left learning to use a computer. We see that the body is particularly well-suited for the expression of a rational soul. So we see that the substantial unity of body and soul, uh, what we can do with our bodies, indicates in part that we are one composite unit. Again, we're not a soul that pre-existed the body and at some point got put into it um, and can exist without its body. It can exist without its body. It will be immortal once put into existence. But its body is an essential component of what the human being is. It was until the middle of the last century, the 20th century, thought that uh, the neurons of the brain died and were never substituted by new ones. Um, hence, people who had suffered accidents uh, of the brain, stroke or physical accidents that impaired the brain uh, were not able to recover and perhaps less was done to help their recovery than it is nowadays. But uh, in recent years especially, the reality of neurogenesis, that is the, the birth and growth of new neurons in an adult brain um, is scientifically demonstrated, proven. And that's the picture up at the top right of this slide that shows the division of cells in the brain. And it's interesting to know that when brain cells, when, there, when there's an event, when there's a need for the brain to generate new cells, it does that. Um, and especially in times of accident and, or injury, what have you. In any case, the a stem cell, the, the cells in the brain, located in a particular area of the brain, the dentate gyrus. I'm not a scientist, so but anyway, that's the name of the area. Um, the cells in that area divide into two cells, a stem cell and a cell which will become a neuron fully equipped to function as a neuron. These neurons then migrate into other areas of the brain where they're needed so they can repair and restore what has been damaged, or so that they can be called upon for new tasks. Uh, so it's kind of like the brain repairs itself, restores itself, and grows um, throughout time. 
Now, body and soul, you could never have a soul that was not part of the human composite of body and soul. Why not? Because by definition, the soul is the um, principle of life in a human being. So the soul is that which organizes the matter of which we're made into the kind of structure that it means to be human so that the soul can manifest its rationality, can uh, exist, basically, can do, can allow the human being to do what the human being does because it has a body. And our bodies, without the organization given to them by our life principle, which is our spiritual soul, um, would not have the characteristics that make it the kind of body that we have that is apt for the life of a human being. And I think language is something that we um, can think about in this regard. Not just speech, but think about body language. We say so much more or so much in addition to what our words express by our body language. Sometimes we can send um, unintended messages through our body language, right? Uh, sometimes we can send negative unintended messages uh, through our body language that perhaps reflect an interior attitude that we are trying not to demonstrate exteriorly. And yet, that attitude of soul is there, and so it makes itself known through the body. The same is true with positive attitudes. How do we indicate affection, care, concern through touch, not only speech, through a smile? Sometimes we speak through tears. But all of those gestures that we perform with our bodies are intimately united to our intentions, our dispositions, and our desire to manifest what we mean, to manifest our relationality, our relationship to others. Um, we don't manifest affection to um, our home, okay. much as we may like our home. Uh, with the same kind of body language we do to manifest our affection and love for those of our family, right? We, we take care of our home, but that's making our environment for us. So again, it's clear that the body and soul are intended to be one composite unit, um, and that this is essential to what it means to be human. The other interesting thing is having the kind of body that we have. Only the human person has a fully upright body. Because we are bipedal, that is, we walk on two feet, um, and we have fully formed hands with fully opposable thumbs, a proportionately large head to the size of our body, an unusually shaped jaw, and the kind of uh, tooth formation we have, and a fully developed, highly plastic face with penetrating eyes and a mouth that takes in almost anything as food and lets out articulate, intelligible sounds as speech, um, gives us, it, this body is fit for the kind of expression that an intelligent and free being needs to do, and also the activities that that kind of a being needs to engage in in order to survive. Our hands have been called the tool of tools, and it's amazing what they can do. They're not specialized to one task only. Um, we have fully opposable thumbs, and therefore we have a much more refined capacity for uh, touch, for creation, for making things. Among the ancient Greeks, Plato had an account in the Timaeus of how and why the human body is structured the way it is, with the face looking forward, standing on two legs, 
the head at the top of the body rather than uh, elsewhere, etc., etc. Aristotle said that it is more reasonable to suppose that the human being has hands because he is intelligent. Hands are tools, and nature, like a wise steward, gives each tool to the one who can use it. And therefore, we have the hands we have as human beings and not the hands of an ape, okay, which cannot be used the way we can use our hands. So because we have both an intelligence and the hands to put that intelligence to work, we can do more than just adapt the environment, adapt to the environment in which we find ourselves, we can adapt the environment itself to us and to our needs. And so we can transform it to our home. Okay. Um, our, our, the world becomes our home. It becomes our world, our home. And then we can talk about our feet. Okay. Since we walk on two feet upright, um, that's not trivial. This position leaves our hands free so that we can use tools or walk and carry things at the same time. It lifts our eyes so we're free to look around the world, out, outside of ourselves and up um, at other things. And this position also allows for a different center of gravity for our heads placed on top of our spinal columns so it can support a proportionately bigger skull and therefore larger brains and consequently our rationality. Um, our mouth, too, is um, an opening both to make sounds and receive food. Uh, we're omnivores, which gives us a possibility to survive in almost any climate. We have a much broader vocal range than any of the other animals. Um, and we can use this very wide range of sounds to communicate things more than just food or mate but we can talk about things like truth, goodness, and beauty. We can theorize. Um, think of where we would be if we could not theorize and could not have developed medicine, the technology that helps us so much. And yes, all these things can be misused um, if we want to do that. But by and large, the fact that we can do these things makes things better. Um, We are also <laughs> what Leon Cass has called culinary animals. Uh, this is another very important bodily difference from other animals that is indicative of the fact that body and soul are meant to be together in one composite substance that we call the human being. Um, at first, the fact that we have uh, compared to the primates, who are closest relatives in evolution, small jaws, relatively small hips and bellies, um, can seem as a weakness. We have a much more limited digestive system than they do. And at the same time, among primates, we have the biggest brain-to-body ratio, with a much higher concentration of neurons in our cerebral cortex. Neurons require more energy to function than any other tissue in the body. Our brain, which is about 5% of our body mass, nevertheless uses 20% of the energy we consume. And scientists have wondered how we manage to get enough energy from eating to support this big brain, given the limits of our digestive system. The answer is that we cook. Um, the human being has, contrary to the other animals, overcome the fear of fire in order to be able to cook our food so that we can then absorb more calories and more nutrients from the food that w than we could by eating it raw. Matter of fact, we could not survive or thrive in eating only raw foods. Uh, even if we tried, we'd have to spend at least nine hours a day chewing. Uh, clearly, <laughs> we are not merely animals, and our body is apt for being rational animals for, for our rationality and our relationality. So this, it's clear that our bodies are well designed as the bodies of rational animals. Um,
So moving on to our next slide then, body and soul as co-principles of one substance. To be human is to be only one thing. The human body is the body of a rational animal. It's a very apt embodiment for the spiritual soul, as we've said. And the soul is the human being's spiritual principle. It's the form of the body. And God creates, as we said already, every spiritual soul immediately. It's not produced by the parents and doesn't perish at death. And then it will be reunited with the body at the final resurrection. Um, animated by a spiritual soul, the human body shares in the dignity of God's image. And therefore, respect for our bodies uh, and for human ecology, the flourishing of the human person and the creation of the conditions that foster this, is are something that we is very important for us to take care of, to understand, and to carry forth. And then we take a look at sexual differentiation, physical immaturity at birth, and interdependence. Um, our relational and social nature has the expressions we said already about the way our bodies are structured. But our sexual differentiation as male and female and the complementariness that that implies for procreation leads us to think about the fact that human beings are born really immature. Other animals can walk almost as soon as they're born. Not so with the human being. We need years and years of intense care just to survive to learn how to thrive, and then to be independent and do it for ourselves and, and then carry on with uh, the coming generations. And throughout our lives, from birth till death, we rely on each other for much of what we need, not just um, because of the division of the necessary division of labor in society, but because of the need to love and be loved. Again, studies were carried out that showed that infants even if they were cared for, technically speaking, very well, they were clean, they were fed, they were in proper temperature, etc., would not necessarily thrive without human contact, without human touch, without relationship to a caregiver. And this is right at birth, so it's, it's not something that they're, they're thinking through. It's simply a need of our being, an indication of how we are essentially interdependent um, beings, and that these years of development and of nurturance are necessary. They lay the foundation of our personalities. They lay the foundation of the bonds that we will have with other people and of our capacity to bond with other people, which is very important for the thriving of the individual in every dimension. Um, and for the thriving of society as well. Just to conclude here then, I'd like to go back to the fact that we are created as relational beings um, in the image and likeness of God, of God who is a communion of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the life of the Trinity is love, right? So I'd like to pick up something that St. John Paul II says in his uh, letter on the dignity and vocation of woman. He alludes to the fact that man, human being, created as man and woman, is the image of God, and that this means not only that each individually is like God, which is true, every man, every woman, each one of us, is the image and likeness of God in our intelligence and freedom, as a rational and free being, but it also means that man and woman created as a unity of the two in their common humanity are called to live in a communion of love and in this way to mirror in the world the communion of love that is in God through which the three persons love each other in the intimate mystery of the one divine life. And this, of course, then is what this relationship is not only what brings uh, new human beings into existence, but think about it. These human beings are, in the best case scenario, they're born into love. They're born out of love. 
and they're born into love. And we teach them in every dimension, again, physical care, emotional care, uh, intellectual care and challenge, uh, opening opportunities for them, teaching them, mentoring them into life as a human being. Okay. We bring in them into the fullness of their humanity where they can then take over and on their own live, direct their own lives and do this for the succeeding generation. So this interrelationship is something to be treasured and, and really lived in a thoughtful way, this communion of persons, this communion of love. And of course, that extends beyond the family then to our social relationships as well. Um, relationships at work, <laughs> collegiality, for example, collaboration with our coworkers. Uh, we can really create, as St. John Paul said, a society of love, a very, a very positive thing where all human beings can flourish. We come into the world so that we can live not only side by side as rational and free beings, but rather face to face as well as beings created to exist mutually for one another, making a sincere gift of self in fruitful spousal love and in other noble human relationships, uh, more or less intimate, right? Um, and in that, we are the likeness of God, the Blessed Trinity, who's also a communion of persons. We share our work, not only side by side, but our very selves with one another face to face. Even our bodies then, and not just our souls, are in the image and likeness of God. Not because God has a body, but because the complementarity of the male and female bodies are a sign of our being called to love and to be loved and to share in the unity and happiness of the Trinity, life beyond death, life in heaven for which God destined us. And just to close the loop, again, each person is a gift from God, a loving gift from God. The love of God expressed in the gift of life and all the potentialities of that individual, that gift to the most intimate communion, which is the family, and that gift to all of society and ultimately as the link in all of human history. Thank you for listening. Next time, we will talk about rationality and that what that means for being human. <laughs>